These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. As of 1590 BCE, the Hittite roller coaster has reached a truly impressive peak. Babylon has been sacked and annihilated, as has Yamhat, the great power of Syria. To the east, south, and west of the land of Hatti, every foreign nation of any significance is subdued and treasures flowing into Hattusha in unprecedented quantities. Mershili's grand ambition has seen the Near East wiped clean of great powers, aside from his own Hittite empire. And then, within a scant few seasons, the conquering king lies dead, his blood dripping from an assassin's knife. No final testament for the great Hittite hero, no slow death surrounded by family to allow him to pass on his final will, and no great death in battle to be sung of for ages to come. Instead, he falls to a dark deed of treachery that will plunge the court and the kingdom into over a century of poorly attested confusion. Indeed, with a single exception, the next ten Hittite kings will be remembered principally for the violence that brought them into power not anything they did while holding the reins of the kingdom. Our intrigue begins while Mershili was away on campaign. Though we focused mainly on his two great campaigns, it seems likely that, like his predecessor, Mershili was away on campaign for the majority of each year, leaving the lesser vassal kings and courtiers to manage the kingdom in his absence. I would love to be able to dive into the soap opera drama that almost certainly accompanied what's to come. But the fact is that, as we'll see, our Hittite history roller coaster is about to plummet precipitously, and facts on the ground are going to be quite scarce for the coming century. Indeed, much of what I'm about to tell you is reconstruction, plus a bit of storytelling to fill in the gaps, or, in harsher terms, speculation informed speculation, but still not the sort of hard facts we would prefer. Our tale kicks off with three conspirators very close to the great king. His sister, Harap Shili, is the fulcrum providing legitimacy. I've taken pains to point out in previous episodes the diversity of Hittite marriage customs and how it was possible in some cases for a man to enter into a matrilocal and matrilineal marriage with a woman and thereby enter into the woman's house, instead of the standard practice of the wife joining the husband's family. Well, though each king appears to have had many children, there was a very strong preference for filling jobs like generalships and governorships with direct relations, and given the last 50 years of strong expansion, there seems to have been more positions than even the most virile and polygamous of kings was able to fill with his own sons. And so the daughters were pressed into service as well. Not into service as governors, that would be absurd. No way were they going to let women operate anywhere in the government on their own merit. But rather, by being married off to men of nobility and general merit, bringing them into the household of the king and making them eligible for service in the highest offices. And so Harapshili, sister of the king, had been married off to a fellow named Hantili to allow him to take some sort of office in Mershili's court. We don't know specifically what he did. His only known title is cupbearer, but in all likelihood this was a prestige title and responsibility added on to an existing role as advisor, general, or governor. 
Still, the formal duty as a royal cupbearer gave him access to the king, both showing that he was considered highly trustworthy, since he was allowed to handle and trusted not to poison the king's beverages. However, we only hear about this in one source, Telepinu's Edict, which we'll be discussing soon, and provides the vast majority of our information for this sequence of events. And by its very nature, it's far from a neutral account, which allows us to wonder if Hantili is being compared to another famous regicide that would have been well known in Near East culture at the time, namely Sargon of Akkad, who had been cupbearer to the king of Kish before overthrowing that king and founding Mesopotamia's first proper empire. And thus, the idea of a killer being a cupbearer could well have been a literary device, acting to diminish whatever higher title he may have held. Additionally, after two great kings who made a point of comparing themselves to Sargon in their official propaganda, and each claiming to surpass his deeds, comparing this third king to Sargon only in the fact of his regicide could well have been a subtle literary jab at his inadequacy compared to his predecessors. Our third conspirator is a young man named Zidanta, who has a bit of a reputation as a hothead and is usually blamed for inciting the whole affair. Interestingly, Zidanta was related to Hantili in yet another matrilineal fashion, being the husband of Hantili's unnamed daughter. There is a single, very fragmentary mention that they may have accused Mershali of being cursed by the gods and thus in need of death, possibly referring to some sort of unfortunate happenstance occurring domestically within the land of Hatti. After all, the great eruption of the Santorini volcano likely occurred under his reign, and the climatic effects probably persisted for some time. But it's hard to square the idea of a divine curse on Mershili's reign with the evident success of his military ventures, so it's hard to say just how much the conspirators were motivated by religious devotion and how much they were focused on personal gain. But whatever the facts of the matter, only a few years after his greatest glory, great King Mershili was murdered. His blood on the knives of Hantili and Zidanta. Hantili then took the throne even before the old king's body was cool, and then proceeded to prove himself to be not actually the horrible, terrible, regicidal king that later Hittite records would portray him as. The Anatolian kingdoms had been, as we'd seen, terribly unstable, and also the kings had spent the greater part of nearly every year away from the capital on campaign. Whether Hantili had noticed the pattern or if he was simply forced into it by circumstance, he broke with this tradition by spending most of his time far closer to the Hattian heartland, and thus more able to directly oversee the stability of his kingdom. The very beginning of his reign almost certainly saw a trimming of the family tree. Later records are very clear that within a few generations, a purge of potentially ambitious male relatives was an expected outcome of a regicide. He stops by a number of cities, Ashtada, Shukzia, Herpana, Kargamesh, and ensures that each is properly within the kingdom and handing over taxes and troops without issue in a sort of internal good governance campaign to replace the year's normal, aggressive military expansion. That said, no Hittite king could plausibly assert his control over the land without accompanying it by a certain amount of campaigning, and so at some point early in his reign, troops were called up. 
but even in this, he was not out for conquest, and probably the treasury of Hattusha was by this point so overflowing that he didn't have the same sort of financial pressures that drove previous generations. No, the conservative Hantili was concerned with maintaining what had already been conquered, preserving what borders he could, and consolidating the very weakly held empire. To that end, he strikes out for Carchemish, a major Syrian vassal on the upper Euphrates, to fight off a Hurrian incursion. He doesn't seem to have won or lost any substantial amount of territory here, so while we don't know how the fighting went exactly, it could not have been a disaster, but it also wasn't such a victory that Carchemish would become a staging ground for further conquests. Alternately, the conservative Hantili won the fight and was content to simply hold the borders where they were, not needing the additional hassle of integrating yet more territory into the already overstretched empire. But, according to the received narrative, it's on his way back from this campaign, while passing through the town of Tegarama, the modern town of Gurun in Turkey, he received a message from the gods directly. We don't know what the message said exactly, it was probably some sort of omen, but we have a pretty good sense that the general gist of it was, Oh, you done screwed up now, boy. Referencing the god's implacable anger at Hantili's participation in the regicide. He's said to have lamented that he should never have gone along with Zedanta's plan, and felt a great fear and regret. Of course, now that he is being called to account, it's suddenly Zedanta's plan, even though it is Hantili who directly benefit from it. In any case, he went straight back home to Hattusha, and did what any sensible wealthy man would do after being promised that God's wrath was on its way. He built the walls of the city up to the largest and most impressive they'd ever been. Actually, he claims to have built the very first set of walls to ever encircle the city, but archaeology tells us that this is simply false. So he likely oversaw some sort of expansion or improvement to the city wall system. Now, when Telepanu later tells us about divine wrath falling on Hantili, he clearly has something in mind. We are, however, left to infer what that might be. If it was something domestic like crop failures, ongoing climate issues, or economic problems, those are likely invisible to us now. With the destruction of two great civilizations, it is likely that the trade which made Syria and Babylon such wealthy targets and which had been diverted into Anatolia by Hattusili and Mershali has dried up, causing a general decline in the availability of goods right as plunder has brought quite a lot of spendable wealth into the capital, leading to an excess of currency at about the same time as the kingdom may have been experiencing a shortage of real wealth possibly compounded by climate-related shortages. Because the economic details would not have been understood at the time, it's easy to think that the most visible symptoms of price spirals and acute shortages could have been taken as divine wrath. But there are two specific enemies, each with an acute disaster associated that could also be construed as the manifestation of divine wrath on Hantili's kingdom. The first is the Cascans coming down from the north and raising the holy city of Narek to the ground. We have in other episodes had mention of both Cascans and holy Narek, but without any real explanation. Around the year 1600, 
probably is part of a general movement of peoples around this time, down from the Caucasus Mountains come a fairly mysterious barbarian group of nomads, sometimes called Kaska, or Kaskians, or Gaska. But Kaskan seems to be the most common in the modern scholarship. From this point until the end of Hittite history, they will live along the northeast coast of the Anatolian Peninsula, in the rugged terrain hugging the Black Sea. They've left us no records of themselves. Everything we know of them is from the civilized peoples who told of their battles against the nomad barbarians. In this sense, they're part of a barbarian lineage running from the mysterious Gutians that plagued ancient Sumer, all the way up to the Germanic tribes that would eventually destroy the Roman Empire 3,000 years later. The Cascans will sit in the north, and they'll never go away never be completely beaten, and never stop being a threat to the security of the land of Hatti. And the reign of Hantili is the first actual mention of them we see in the record. That said, there isn't really much we can say about the Cascans. They might as well be the orcs of Mordor, for all we know. I mentioned in the Daily Life episodes recently how the northern villages, which the Cascans could raid at any time, lived as semi-fortress compounds, populated by deportees and kept behind walls at night for their own safety. It's fully possible that the Hittites didn't really know too much about them either, and when they fell upon the holy city of Narek, it may well have been as unexpected as aliens landing from space. Now, if that name, Narek, sounds vaguely familiar to you, it's probably because you heard it way back during the special episode on the Ilyanka myth that I did a few months ago. Narek was originally the primary city for hosting the spring Peruli festival, where the myth of Ilyanka would be recounted each year as part of the festivities. Narek had probably been an important religious center, even going back to the pre-Hittite Anatolian days, and it would be left as a ruin deep in Cascan territory for the next 300 years, a situation that will be lamented by numerous kings between now and its eventual refounding near the end of the empire. Of course, some scholars identify the capture of Narek with Hantili II, who will also rule in near obscurity a century from now, and it's a testament to just how badly documented this Middle Hittite period is that we can mix up such hugely important events as the fall of a great holy city by a century. The other divine threat, one that will press rather more strongly in Hantili's reign, are the Hurrians. These are another people that we have seen before and will see again, having lived at the north end of the Fertile Crescent since probably the days of Sargon the Great, if not earlier. They are also a disunified migratory ethnic group, but where the Cascans are straight-up barbarians, the Hurrians are only semi-nomadic, and quite content in many cases to civilize or live in cities, and even build their own when conditions are right. Much like the early dynastic Sumerians or the classical Greeks, they are a mix of independent city-states and semi-nomadic tribes who all share a culture but remain politically disunified overall. However, like the Greeks and Sumerians, they are fully capable of forming coalitions when the time is right, such as for mutual defense or in retribution against hostile powers. But the thing about the Hurrians of Hantili's time though it wouldn't yet be recognized by any literate power, is that they aren't the same Hurrians the previous generations of Hittites struggled against. 
the same climate shifts and movements of peoples that brought the Caskins down from the mountains and helped bring about the end of Babylon and maybe even finished off the Harappan civilization over in the distant Indus Valley, has brought a new power to the Middle East just as the board has been swept clean. Slowly and quietly, the Hurrian tribes and cities are being confederated by an Indo-European group, the Mitanni, and their terrifying Marianu charioteers will carry a reputation among the people of the late Bronze Age that the warriors of Sparta carried in classical Greece and indeed today. While frustratingly little is known about the Mitanni, they will become one of the great powers of the late Bronze Age. There will be a separate episode focused purely on them, and the Mitanni are going to be a staple of the coming series of episodes as we move through the late Bronze Age. After the campaigns near Karchemish, Hantilit may have seen the newfound organization and military might of his eastern neighbor, and his sudden regret may well have come not from divine sources, but from the realization that the Hurrians may well be more than his kingdom could handle. All the work and moral blemishing to get him into power, only to see that he may well be drinking from a poisoned chalice. And indeed, Telepinu tells us that the Hurrians seem to plunder across the land of Hatti unstoppably, chasing the Hittites like foxes in the bushes. However, Telepinu was an enemy of Hantili's legacy, and it may not have actually been quite as bad as all that. At the very least, Hattusha appears to have been spared, and the enemy was probably stopped before ever making it so far west as the capital city. But the divine wrath wasn't limited to the threat of Hurrians in general, but struck the king's own family. The details are one of the broken places in Telepinu's edict, but from what we can still read, it seems that the queen and two children found themselves in the town of Sugzia, east of the Hittite capital. The queen is unnamed in the edict, but was likely the king's primary wife and main connection to the royal bloodline, Harapshili, and the two children were likely to have been contenders to the throne. It may have been the case that Harapshili was captured somewhere and brought to the conquered city of Sugzia, or they may have had some reason to go to Sugzia only to have it conquered while they were there. The royal wife and children were held as prisoners for an extended period of time, and this imprisonment by foreign powers seems to have been either an intense source of anguish for Hantili, or deemed by the nation at large to be a national tragedy, or of course it could be both. A fragment survives, having been copied during a later period, of a myth in the vanishing god genre, as was discussed at length in the episode Telepinu, the Vanishing God, though the main source of the myth tells us about the wrath and disappearance of Telepinu, an agricultural and weather deity, we actually have fragments of a few dozen versions of this myth and the associated ritual to appease the upset god, most using very standard invocations alongside some specific details to mark out which particular god is being appeased by the human priests. This particular fragment, badly damaged and heavily reconstructed, clearly comes from the latter half of the Vanishing God myth, in which offerings are being made to the storm god of Queen Harapshili, her personal protective deity, that the god's wrath may be extinguished. 
in the portion which corresponds to the feast under the hawthorn tree, when the angry God has been pacified and being offered gifts for his glory, we get the line, Before the altar, a hunting bag made of a lamb's fleece is hanging. In it liest the gentle message of the lamb. In the same way, may Queen Harapshili be a gentle message to the storm god of Harapshili. And later the priest cries out, O storm god, give sons and daughters, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and long years to her, the queen. While it is very typical for this genre, even in its most complete form, to simply go without stating explicitly what the problem is that this god is trying to be calmed down from, it's entirely possible that this hymnic myth was composed and the associated ritual performed to get the protective deity to deliver the queen from her captivity. If this was the case, it seems it was ineffective. After a period in captivity, the queen and her two captive children died, probably killed by their captors, though maybe incidentally of disease. Hantili was later able to track down certain Sugzian officials he deemed responsible, either through their negligence or from cooperating with the Hurrians, and was able to get a measure of vengeance through their execution. But still, the damage was done. Despite the wrath of the gods, Hantili was able to rule for a remarkably long period, and for all that he was beset by invasions, there is some reason to think that he was able to bring the core of the kingdom into a measure of stability that it had never previously enjoyed. Though we're going to see some dark times for the Hittite kingdom, we are not going to be seeing the sort of wide-scale revolts that have been a feature of every succession up until this point. While dates are hard to come by, he may have reigned for a good 20 to 30 years, and probably left the Anatolian and North Syrian parts of the kingdom to his son Pesheni more or less intact. But still, the gods have one last twist of the knife in store for this regicidal ruler. As he lay dying of natural causes and old age, his co-conspirator, the hothead Zedanta, murdered Hantili's designated successor Pesheni, as well as all of Pesheni's children, and then marched to Hantili's deathbed, confessed to his second series of murders, and declared to the dying man that he, Zedanta, would be taking the throne next. And as Hantili closed his eyes and ascended to the godhood that awaited each dead great king, he could do nothing but accept what had already been done. Zidanta appears to have accomplished very little on the throne, and may have ruled for ten years or maybe less. He left us no accomplishments, no stories, no conquests, no building projects, and if he was defeated in battle, it's impossible to tell which of the many losses belonged to him and which to his ill-fated successor. He's remembered exclusively for his part in the murder of Mershili, his killing of the heir Pesheni, and his own death at the hands of his son Amuna, an event notable for being the first direct father-to-son transfer of power attested in Hittite history, unless you count the old king Anita as part of the Hittite line. We have very little evidence to suggest that Amuna was any more competent or divinely favored than his father had been, and indeed the vast majority of actual losses in this period are attributed to his twenty years on the throne. To start out, 
A massive drought sweeps over the Hittite heartland of Hatti, laying low both crops and livestock. Kaskin and Hurrian raids show no signs of having let up, and control of Syria likely fell out of Hittite control early in Amina's reign, or perhaps back in Zedanta's. But generations of a weakened Hittite state have finally spurred numerous nearby regions to rise up, either in revolt or in conquest. We get the impression that by the death of Mershili, nearly all of western Anatolia had somehow been in the Hittite political sphere, either as vassals, client kings, or just nations that knew better than to mess with the great king in his hour of triumph. Fifty years later, this has completely fallen apart. And Galmia, Arzawa, Salapa, Parduwata, Ahula, and Adania decide that now is the time to break free and grab a nice fat chunk of Hittite territory for themselves. Most of these names are completely unknown, but we remember Arzawa as a former rival to the early Hittite state that was brought to heel under Hattushili. Most interestingly, that last nation, Adania, is one of those fun places that goes by a wide number of names. We're going to see this newborn nation most frequently as the kingdom of Kizawatna, but fans of classical here his but fans of classical history may know the region best as Cilicia or with the Greek pronunciation Kalikia, home to the famous Cilician Gates, a series of hugely important mountain passes that would be contested by Alexander the Great, among many others, as the gateway between Anatolia and Syria. Amuna doesn't just sit by and let this happen, though. He strikes out with his army as far east as Haha on the Euphrates River, north deep into Kaskan territory, south into the rebellious Kizawatna, and all over the west. We even have a few fragments of what appears to be a contemporary chronicle of Amina's reign. Tellingly, however, while we know that he campaigns in numerous places, he only reports a single victory in all of these the sacking of the old city of Kanesh after a rebellion. By failing to mention victory, and by watching the borders withdraw slowly to encompass little more than the land of Hatti itself, we can only assume that the Hittite army under Amina began to make a habit of defeat. No longer were the regular military campaigns made as adventures for conquest and plunder to prove the legitimacy of the king's rule. They had now become struggles for the very survival of the kingdom, battles which cost lives and treasure while bringing home only the promise of another year free from death and slavery at the hands of foreign enemies. Amuna would die of natural causes after perhaps twenty years of barely holding on. But as he lay on his deathbed, blood was once again flowing through the capital. The elite unit of the great king's personal guards the Golden Spears, had apparently developed an interest in politics, and the head of the guard, a man named Zuru, sent one of his guardsmen to go murder the crown prince, a fellow named Titi, along with his entire family, for we have seen that even grandchildren can be plausible claimants to the throne. He then, or perhaps simultaneously, sent another assassin after what we presume to be the second in line for the throne, a younger son who went by the name Hatili. Thus, the throne fell to the third in line, a son named Huzziah. 
It isn't clear what the relationship between guard Captain Zuru and the new king Haziah was, nor is it clear how Haziah was related to Amunam. But despite the many valiant attempts of scholars to draw up family trees, it's simplest to assume that Haziah was simply the third most eligible son, and Zuzu was a confederate either through marriage to this third son's family or promised great wealth for his cooperation. Haziah may now be king, but he knew well that so long as there were still men in the line of Ammonah, there were still threats to this new power. And so he began to plot quietly to take out the next son in line, a young man by the name of Telepinu, named for the famous agriculture and storm god. What happened next is completely unknown, but next thing we know, Haziah's plot has been discovered. Haziah is banished from Hattusha, and Telepinu becomes the king. The list of things we don't know here is very long, and this entire situation appears to be quite remarkable. Making it even more remarkable is the fact that one of the things we do know is that the coup was almost completely bloodless. Now, there are about as many interpretations of what happened as there are historians studying this period which is to say not a whole lot, but a, a few, and the interpretation I prefer goes something like this. The Hittite government had always been reliant on a network of civil and religious administrators to manage the empire. When the palace guard involved itself in the succession, this opened the door for the factions at court to also involve themselves. However, while the standing army may have supported Haziah, this elite core was likely quite small by this point, dwarfed by the semi-professional militia and civilian levies that required an array of bureaucrats to call up each campaign season. It appears that the entire apparatus of governance, what we might call the bureaucracy, though it likely wasn't quite that organized, came to back Telepinu, while only the palace guard backed Haziah. With this sort of power imbalance, a negotiated settlement was reached. Telepinu promised mercy. Maybe he was un under political pressure to show himself as different from the bloodthirsty usurper. Maybe he was offering what seemed like the best incentive to resolve the situation. Or perhaps most likely, Telepinu was just a deeply religious and idealistic young man who believed that a peaceful resolution was the best. In Telepinu's own words, he says as he banishes Haziah and his faction that they did evil to me, but I will not do evil to them. The sort of turn-the-other-cheek moral sentiment that is extremely rare even in the most idealistic of proverb collections, to say nothing of actual records of Mesopotamian and Near East history up to this point. In a few years, Telepinu is going to draft his famous succession edict, a legal document which will outline most of the history we've gone over in this episode in very moralizing terms. It's clear that the bloodshed among the noble house in the last few generations has disgusted Telepinu on a moral level, and he clearly believes that no king can hold the favor of the gods so long as he came to power in an evil fashion. And he meant it, too. A few years later, a conspiracy among the court ministers who had supported Telepinu's rise selected a man named Tarhuwali, as well as two others, to go murder the deposed Haziah and his brothers out on their peaceful retirement farm. 
When the king found out, he was absolutely furious, and so the ministers, again seeking to pacify the ruler, convened a trial before the Panku Council of Ministers, and sentenced the three scapegoats to death. At which point, we can imagine him screaming in frustration at the Panku Council as he changed their ruling from execution to exile, saying that no, there will be no bloodshed here, none at all. And in one of the most striking passages from ancient literature, Telepanu concludes the main portion of his great edict with the admonition, Henceforth, whoever becomes king and plans injury for a brother or sister, you are his panku counsel, and must speak frankly to him, saying, Read the deeds of bloodshed in this tablet. Bloodshed was once common in Hattusha, and the gods exacted retribution from the royal family. In order to prevent further violence, Telepanu clarified and regularized the laws on succession to be something much closer to the standard patrilineal primogeniture most of us are familiar with, though with provisions should the eldest son of the first-rank wife not be eligible for whatever reason. Honestly, I have minimal interest in the minutiae of inheritance laws which seem to fascinate modern scholars, especially since, unlike Telepanu, I don't really see the issue as one of unclear laws, but rather of people being violent in a way completely divorced from matters of law in their pursuit of power. But as an interesting side note, the end of the edict does have two extra matters of legislation tacked on almost as an afterthought. The first reads, The case of murder in general is as follows. Whoever commits murder, whatever the heir himself of the murdered man says will be done. If he says let him die, he shall die. But if he says let him make compensation, he shall pay monetary compensation. The king shall have no role in this decision. This is remarkable for a number of reasons, the first being it shows legislation occurring outside of pure jurisprudence and without the typical if-then formula. Telepano is here very clearly laying out a decree regarding murder in general worked out from his general principles, not generalizing from a specific case. Additionally, removing the king's judgment from what had traditionally been a royal prerogative to resign over capital crimes and devolving the authority to the individuals involved shows yet another way in which the laws of the Hittites made allowance for the vastly different lifestyles even among a greatly reduced kingdom. The next little bonus edict reads, Regarding cases of sorcery in Hattusha. Keep investigating and punishing instances. Whoever in the royal family practices sorcery, seize him and deliver him to the king's court. But it will go badly for the man in his household that does not deliver him. Now, this relates to the general edict in that it brings a general law, the prohibition on wicked sorcery, to apply to the royal family, just as the general prohibition on murder is being applied to the royal family. But if you consider that it's being added on to his great succession edict, the question arises whether the villainous Haziah's plot had in some way involved sorcery. And when this was discovered, the unacceptability of evil witchcraft is what turned the rest of the government against him. 
Can't be said for sure either way, but it does remind us that it is only in very specific cultures like the modern West where dark magics aren't taken extremely seriously. In any case, with the kingship of Telipanu and his great legal reforms, we enter into what's sometimes considered to be a new phase in Hittite history, the Middle Period. This is characterized by a number of changes to the Nishili language that brings it into a form now called Middle Hittite, as well as a shift in attention of the next few kings from conquest to diplomacy. It's finally time to enter into a new age of international relations, one that sees many actors dancing around on the great stage of history. But first, we need to finish up the tale of court intrigue. Because you remember that Telepinu allowed the conspirator who murdered his predecessor to live, though in exile, the man named Tarhawali. Well, it seems that despite Telepinu's noble ambitions, the time of bloodshed is not yet ended in Hattusha. The Middle Period is very poorly documented, but it seems that after a good quarter century in power, Telepinu dies of natural causes and is succeeded by his son Aluwamna. This Alawamna would be killed by Tarhuwali after perhaps a decade, showing that clemency may have been the more dangerous path. The killer king would be killed shortly thereafter and stricken from the king's list for his transgression, but this would prove to be far from the end of bloodshed in the Hittite court. But we've blazed through a quiet and declining century beginning with Mershili's death around 1590 and finding ourselves now at the death of Alawamna around 1490 BCE. It really is that poorly documented of a period that we have said in half an hour about all that could be said of the reigns up to Telepanu, and the general situation will not be improving over the next few episodes. But the most important takeaway from the decline of the Old Kingdom period is that it has been a decline and not a collapse. We saw following the reigns of Patana and Anita and Labarna and Hattushili that the entire empire collapsed on itself with each generation. But though history is hard on the subsequent kings, the fact is that they do not appear to have suffered from the system-wide instability that plagued the early period. These kings stayed home and managed the kingdom, rather than acting as relentless bandits consuming the produce of foreign lands. And the eventual success of the later Hittite period will be built off of this foundation far more than the ephemeral glorious conquests of the sexier kings. Now, that is to say that these were good times for the Hittite kingdoms. They were times of pretty much uninterrupted decline, where access to the outside world became more restricted and the land became more vulnerable to outside attack. The Anatolian people suffered under kings too weak to defend the land. But it will be Telepinu who will figure out the trick, halting the kingdom's decline by moving from defense of the realm to diplomacy with the newly emergent states. But the story of Hittite diplomacy is a tale for another day. Next week, we're going to move back out from Anatolia and take a very broad overview of the Middle East as a whole. It's finally time to properly introduce two new players, 
one who has been a silent partner of our story for quite a while, and one who will burst onto the scene with the fury of a thousand chariots. So join us next week as we chronicle the rise of Egypt to regional power and their conflicts with the newly emergent Mitanni. Thank you for listening.